we continue our series in Paul's letter to the church in Philippi, his favorite church, his favorite Christians. We come today to one verse and not even the whole verse. Don't worry, I'll explain why. But let me go ahead and read uh, verse 27 through verse 30 of Philippians chapter 1. We've gotten through the great section where Paul says he's hard-pressed. He has this dilemma. We looked at it last week. He has a dilemma. Is he going to live or is he going to die? Does he want to live or does he want to die? He says, personally, I love to die because I'm with Christ. But living, y'all need me to. Y'all need me to live. So for your sake, I will live. I want to live. I'm convinced of that. So now he begins to move to speak to them more directly. Let's hear the word of Paul, the word of Jesus, the word of our God. These are red letter words, just like the rest of the Bible. Let's receive them as that. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm. One spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. That's the reading of God's holy and pure word. May he bless it to our hearts. Let's pray and ask his blessing upon our hearing and preaching of his pure word. Father, we come. We don't want the substitutes. We don't want the artificial. We don't want the plastic. We want the real deal. Give us Christ straight up. Give us Christ. A hundred proof. Show us your gospel and your glory. We pray in his name. Amen. What is the backbone of the Christian life? What's the backbone? I mean, if you had to define the central thing that makes you stand up straight and say, I'm a Christian, what would that be? What's the basic requirement? What's the basic need of the Christian? We live in a world that's changing. People move, people Come, people drive, people fly. We'll be flying to Newcastle. We'll be coming back in nine days. That would have taken a long time, not even 50 years ago. Would have been impossible almost 400 years ago, 500 years ago. But we live in a day where you can change. You can change your name. You can change your age. You can change all sorts of things about you. You can change your body. You can change your mind. And a lot of people do. But is there one stable requirement to be a Christian? Yes, there is. Yes, there is. What is it? What is it? Several requirement to be a Christian. It is the need of the word of God. What do you need to be a Christian? You need the word of God. You need it pumped into your bloodstream, coursing through your veins. You need the word of God by the spirit of God to give you life and not just give you it one time. You need it all the time. Like you eat for your body. So you need to eat the word for your soul and your mind and your heart and your will. And therefore, it's in God's providence. We come to a text this morning that. God wants to use to inject something into our bloodstream. He wants to inject the gospel. 
which he does every week, of course, but how does he want to do it this week? Let's look at it first. Let's look first and see uh, this word only. We're not going to just look at the word only, don't worry, but let's look first at the word only. That's a signal. It's a very important signal. One writer calls this the most important only in the whole Bible. It's the shift that Paul's been making. He makes it right here in the chapter. He's been praying. He started off introducing the letter, as everybody did in those days, as you do with your emails. Then he got into his prayers in verse 3 of the chapter, all the way through verse 11. A long prayer. He prays. And then what does he do? From verse 12 all the way through verse 26, he talks about himself. He says, I might die. I might live. I don't know. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm rejoicing. I'm so happy. I'm so delighted that Jesus Christ is lifted up. And now he shifts. This is a radical shift. It's interesting, by the way, that this shift comes after he prays. Because of what's the shift? The shift is now he's, he's going to talk to them mano y mano. He's going to speak to these Christians and he's going to speak directly to them all the way until verse 16 of chapter 2. This is, if you want to call it kind of the second great division of the body of the letter of Philippians for you literary nerds. This is a great change only. He says, I talked about myself. I prayed for y'all. Now I'm going to speak to you. There's a very basic, good Christian lesson in that. When you need to talk to somebody, let's say your spouse, when you need to talk to somebody, let's say your parents, and you need to have a challenging or even just a conversation with them about the faith, do you pray for them first? Do you pray for them before you talk to them? Paul prays for these Philippians before he talks to them, before he has the challenging conversation. It's a very good lesson for us to learn. Just off the cuff, prayer before talk. You see, Paul is leaving his own room. He's going into the church's room. And Paul begins with this general exhortation. Look at verse 27. We'll look at just the first, the first phrase here. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. We're just going to look at this basic call. That's it this morning. Why are we doing that? Is it just because Pastor John wants to be a weird preacher? Well, no. No, uh, I may be, but uh, that's for you to decide. It's not because I want to be eccentric. This is so vital. We stop here because it's so important for us to get this right. It is a clarion call. It's not a sneaky way for Pastor John to quote a little bit of the Bible and then go off on his hobby horse. I have hobby horses. But that's not why we're doing it. We're slowing down here because first, this is a worthwhile phrase. This is the first point you have in your outline if you want to follow that along. This is that first critical, worthwhile phrase, and it begins with this only. I've already mentioned the only is important, but why is the only important? It's a major shift because Paul is saying, whether I live, whether I die, whether I see you, whether I don't, if you never see me again, this needs to still be true. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. He's saying, in effect, this is the key Christian thing. Focus on it. This is the central point. He is saying, warning, take note, pay attention only. Now, boys and girls, you know this. Well, 
maybe not boys and girls, but if, if you're a certain age, you know, usually as in a teenager, remember there's an age where mom and dad allowed you to stay home while they went out to eat or they went out on running errands. There's a certain time, at least the only child there was, where I was allowed to stay home by myself. But what did my parents tell me and what did your parents tell you when they allowed you to stay home by yourself? Well, they had some instructions. They said, feed the pets, eat the leftovers, don't order pizza, clean the dirty dishes. And then right before they left, whatever you do, don't answer the door. Whatever you do, don't unlock the door. We have the key. We'll get in. Whatever you do. And what was that whatever you do? That was the most important thing. I could not do all the rest. I could leave the dishes undone. But whatever you do, don't answer the door. Here's the way Paul opens this part of the letter. Only whatever you do, here's what you need. And then he, he adds on a little bit of weight in how he talks to them. It's not just the importance of the word only, but it's actually the way he talks to them. Notice here, he's not encouraging them. He's not saying, you know, guys, you've been great. He's done that before. He's prayed that before in the chapter. He said, verse, verse 7, you are all partakers with me of grace. Verse 5, you're partners in the gospel with me. He's already encouraged them. This is not an encouragement. He's also not begging them. He's not saying, please, 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 please listen to me. I really need you to listen to me, guys. No, the grammar is clear. He, Paul, uniquely charged as an apostle of Christ, gives them a command. This is a divine imperative. He pricks up their ears with the word only, whatever you do. And then he binds their consciences. A lot of us don't like that phrase because we feel like we can do whatever we want to. But Paul binds these folks' consciences with these words by the authority of Jesus Christ. He says, look, whether I come and see you, whether I'm not seeing you, this is what you must do. And notice he does not say you must do it for a bit. You must do it uh, for a week or two. He says this is a continuous command. Your manner of life, that is all of your life. He's not saying, you know, every couple of weeks on a Sunday, it'd be good if you lived a little bit like the gospel. He's not saying when I show up, then you better put on your big boy pants. Then you better really dress up and act right. He wants continual, perpetual, unchanging lifestyle that is worthy of the gospel. How does that strike you? How does that strike you? There are a few things that are better calculated to judge how we're doing as Christians, how we're doing as people. There are a few things that are better to deal with, to, to kind of analyze how you're doing than to look at your own response when you're faced with a clear command from Jesus Christ, a clear divine command from the Bible. There are a few things that are more helpful to us to say, how do I respond when I hear these words? Where does your mind go? I mean, where, where, where has it already been going? Live a life worthy of the gospel. Where's your mind go? Do you run to excuses? It's funny how many folks, even in Presbyterian, especially in Presbyterian circles, 
they come to some of the Mount and they, our, our first reaction is say, well, I can't do that. I can't live that way. I can't be perfect. I can't even be half perfect, you know? Uh, he, he says, you know, don't even look at a woman. No, I can't do that. Without lust, oh, that's impossible. He can't mean that we're actually supposed to follow these sort of things. It's funny how we run to that sort of exegesis. And if you sit here and you're hard-edged and you're cold-hearted and you're hearing a command of God, you're hearing a command of Jesus, then guess what? That's an accurate depiction of your soul. Cold-hearted, hard-edged. Few things bring more quickly to the surface what you're really like as a person than a divine imperative. God says you have to do this. And what's the attitude of your heart? Are you like Pharaoh? Or you come up with all sorts of reasons why you don't need to listen to this stuff? Like the Pharisees? Are you saying, you know what, that's, that's not for me. Paul's just some guy. I mean, he's not Jesus. I only follow Jesus. Really? You do? How's that going for you? You see, <laughs> one time a high school English teacher had her students read the Sermon of the Mount. They weren't Christians. They hadn't read it before. And they said, this is crazy. This is impossible. Nobody could actually mean these words. And that's the state of our hearts, friends. We say, don't intrude into my lifestyle, Jesus. Be my buddy. Give me some encouragement. Make me feel warm and fuzzy. That's what I want. Be my homeboy. That's about it. And that's a natural reaction that we all have because we hate God. We are at enmity. We're at war with God. That's what Romans 8 says. So what is your inner instinct been for the last five minutes when I've been talking about this? What's been your inner instinct? Has it been deflection? Distraction? Rationalization? Well, that's the first century. I mean, that's Paul. You know, and there's some cultural context here. And no, he, he probably doesn't mean it for us. Maybe the Greek's different, you know? Or maybe it's even more based than that. Maybe it's a little less sophisticated than that. Maybe even, even more cynical than that. You know, this is a bunch of rules. This is, this is why I hate religion. You know, you go to church and this is what they tell you. All the talk about grace and love and you come to it and uh, it's all a bunch of rules. Regs. Well, just, just face up to it then. You don't actually like God. You don't actually love Jesus. Not as he calls you to. Just admit, first step, admitting it. Admitting it. You don't like him. You don't love him. Not when he comes to you like this. But maybe there's other people here, and it's not just the reaction of an unrepentant heart. Maybe it's the reaction of a self-righteous heart. This is the Pharisee, Luke 18. Uh, yeah, I've done this. I can do it. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Some of us hear that, and we've been in church a while, and we say, okay, what does that look like, pastor? Give me the five tips I need, and I'll fulfill those five tips. I'll get started on it right now. I'm going to go home. I'm going to change my life. I'm going to be worthy. One more step to heaven, one more hoop to jump through, one more ladder, uh, one more rung on the ladder. And because she has an imperfect understanding of God, of his commands, she thinks I can do it myself. And that's the basis of his acceptance, the Pharisee's acceptance before God. That's the basis of so much of our view of God. Follow the rule. So you come to a command of Christ. You come to a command right here. You say, yes, give me more command. I love going to a church where I get beat up all the time. Because I can then 
do it. I know where I fail, and I can make a change this week, and I'll turn over the new leaf. And I'll get on that so I can finally make God happy and feel that love of Jesus. I've felt it before. Is that your reaction? Some of us may be a little more self-righteous than we are just hating it outright. But of course, there's a third reaction here. There's the reaction of a heart worn by grace. It's the response of the transformed heart, a heart that loves Christ for Christ's sake, a, a renovated heart, a heart that knows they depend upon the doing and the dying of another person. And so you actually love to follow the Lord, not because you need to earn his love, you need to feel the warm fuzzies, but you know that he smiles upon you as a father smiles upon his son or his daughter. You have that true gospel spirit in which you confess two things equally. The right way to receive this is to confess two things equally. On the one hand, you confess nothing I can do can add one sliver to the salvation accomplished by the doing and the dying of Jesus Christ. Nothing. I cannot be self-righteous. He is righteous. Yet, on the other hand, having received that favor in Christ, I delight to do your will, O God. Teach me your ways. And what am I going to do? What does the scripture say? I'll run in them. I'm going to run in them. I love to do it. It's not a cold-hearted self-righteousness, but it's also not a cold-hearted, sharp-edged hatred of God either. You love Christ, and therefore you want to hear his commands. Only a transformed heart has that. So what is your heart like? I mean, this is a great way to judge. Where are you at? Are you able to say to Christ, I love you, therefore I want to obey you? Well, this is important not just because it's an only, it's important not just because it's a good metric of where we're at in our real life, but it's important, it's worthwhile, thirdly, because it has beautiful, vivid imagery. And you don't catch it because, you know, the ESV doesn't show it right here. Uh, there's a footnote that's a little helpful. But you got to read the footnotes, and most of us don't read books with footnotes. So uh, here's the vivid imagery that, that Paul shows. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And he uses a special word here. You know, oftentimes when Paul is talking about how to live as a Christian, he says walk. One of his favorite ways to speak about the Christian life is to call it, you know, this, this is one of the popular ways. Christian walk. How's your walk doing, brother? How's your Christian walk going? That's, that's from the Old Testament. He's a Jew. It has some good ideas behind it. There's a kind of walk. You, you, pro, you progress and you go forward. You're not running. It's slow, but you're, you're making progress. So it's a good image. But it's not the one he uses here. He uses a different image here. So what's the image? You can look at the footnotes. At least in the ESV, it tells us the Greek is only behave as citizens worthy. Only behave as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. He does not use the word walk. He uses a different noun. And its verb is found in Philippians 3, verse 20. Our citizenship is in heaven. Now, what does this word mean? It carries the idea of civic duty. Behavior that is belonging to a particular city. You live the Atlanta, sorry, the ATL lifestyle. Whether you're inside the perimeter or not. You know, where I grew up, we, we lived in H-Town. Not Houston, the Big Apple. We know what this is like. You have a lifestyle that is 
Vegas, because we all know what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. And Paul is saying, live a lifestyle that is like your city, your hometown. And what's your what's your hometown? He says it's, it's gospel town. Paul is reminding us we have dual passports. You have dual citizenship. You belong here. You have an American passport. You also belong to a different country. You belong to the country of heaven. You should therefore smell like heaven, live like heaven, look like heaven, be like heaven. And he uses this metaphor at least partly because he's talking to Roman citizens. He's talking to Romans who are living in a Roman colony and they're all about being Roman. He's talking to people who love their citizenship and they understand the metaphor. He's saying you need to live lives like citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you may have as American citizens, whatever you may have as Roman citizens, you have a far more glorious, eternal, abiding citizenship. And with it, you have greater responsibilities. So we come to the central, the central call here, the central idea. We come secondly to, to words that are weighty. What's the command? Live as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. What on earth does that mean? What does it mean to be worthy of the gospel of Christ? Well, let's get the, the obvious issue out of the way first. It doesn't mean that you live to earn the blessings. You live a life and then you get the gospel. You live a worthy life and then you earn the blessings of the gospel. That negates the entire message of the gospel. That would make the gospel an anti-gospel. Because what's the good news of Jesus Christ? The good news is guilty, helpless, dead sinners, that God in Christ has done everything necessary for you. He has done everything necessary for your salvation. Gospel is, by definition, good news for dead souls, so you can't earn it. So what is Paul saying? What he's saying is this. He's saying, live out your lives as citizens of gospel town in a way that will reflect that you have been mastered by the gospel. In other words, there are lifestyle implications to being a Christian. There's a way to live that is consistent with the gospel of Christ. There's a way to live that, if you will, puts makeup, dresses up, gussies up the doctrine of Christ, or in Bible language, adorns the doctrine of God, our Savior, in all things. His great passion for this church, for the church that he loves, and even for us. What is your life like as a church? What is your lifestyle like as a Christian? Not just your giving, not just your serving, not just your praying, but that your life itself shows the gospel. Doesn't this indicate to us just how easy it is to profess the gospel? with our lips, and yet live lives that look exactly the same. They actually repudiate the gospel we claim to believe in. They distort the gospel we claim to follow. If we say, I stand by grace alone, ought we not to be humbler, wiser, more patient, more charitable, more sacrificial, more loving, gentler, bolder, more courageous, more compassionate, more reliable, basically more like Jesus Christ. Ought you not to be those things more 
than you once were. I'm not saying more than your neighbors or more than other people. We're not playing that comparison game. We're comparing you to you. Are you living more like Jesus Christ? Not are you a better Christian than so-and-so? We need to feel the force of this challenge. This is an imperative. We need to feel the force of it, I think. Because many today in the church are trying very hard, as hard as possible, to look zero different, no different at all from their neighbors. Many of us are taking our marching orders, our cues, not from Jesus Christ, but from anybody else who tells us what we want to hear. Paul says that if you are a citizen of heaven, if you belong to gospel town and you live in heaven, you live in Zion, you know that it is sheer grace that has bought you and you've been captured by the love of God. Should you not want to live like Jesus Christ? Do you know, therefore, that heaven has come down and it has rescued you in Jesus Christ? It has gotten you. It has taken you. He has grabbed you from the pit. He has lifted you up. He has said, you are mine. I hold you fast. So then live like an immigrant. Do you know that you're an immigrant into heaven? You need to live as an immigrant. Or if you want Bible language, elect exiles of the dispersion. James 1. A resident alien, a pilgrim on this earth. You know, we'll be heading over to, to England this week, and they speak English, so it's, you know, nice, but uh, they're going to be different. They're going to be weird. And guess what? They're going to think I'm weird, too. Now, some of y'all, that's not really different. You already think that. But they're going to think you're weird, too, if you're over there. Because they look different, and you look different, and they act different, and we act different. And we have to ask ourselves the question, if you're in Jesus Christ, do I actually talk differently? Do I act differently? Is there anything obvious about me that I'm not just trying to live as comfy and as happy and as delightful a life on earth? Is there anything about me that's actually different? So the basic meaning of the text is this. Whatever happens to Paul, Philippians, Christians live in a manner that actually matches up in some way that flows from what you say you believe that is the gospel. So what does that mean for us? What does that mean in reality? Let's move finally to a few lines of uh, application, a few lines of this gospel. First, this imperative, this gospel imperative, shows us our real reality. It shows us our real priority. You know, maybe about 10 years ago, 15 years ago, there was a certain type of show on TV that was very popular. You know it. Some of y'all probably liked it a lot more than I did. I never liked them. But the, the reality TV shows, you can still find them. Reality TV, you know, they put a, can, a camera in a home and they invite 10 people in there. And they're all, they're often, you know, young and they're often very self-centered. And so it doesn't take long before, you know, conflict emerges. And it's real life, supposedly. Even though there's cameras there and they've been kind of collected in a home, which is not usually real. But it supposedly portrayed reality, and people love it because we love seeing other people's train wrecks of a life. And yet, none of us likes contemplating our real reality of our own train wreck. Very few of us, if any, loves to say, my life is horrible. Let me think more about that. No, we live in denial. We rationalize. We try to point out our good side. But do you know, friends, that apart from the gospel of Christ, you have no manner of life that's worth anything at all? 
If you're a citizenship of not in heaven, you have a light, you have a, a simulation of life. You live a plastic, artificial, empty life apart from Jesus Christ. It may look very fancy. It may, you may be a- a- acting and doing all sorts of things. You may even do a lot of things in a church. You may be very quote unquote Christian as far as the South defines it, but that's not what God defines it as. Instead, the first thing we must see here is that the gospel itself defines what real life means. The gospel is your real reality. You may say, I embrace Jesus. Paul says your life has to actually look like you do. I embrace Christ. So what does that mean in practice? It means that in your home, the primary concern is not the decor. It's not, can I get another farmhouse style item in my kitchen? Can I be like Chip and Joanna Gaines? That's not the, the high priority that your neighbors have. In your home, the primary concern is not the latest technology of your products, how up-to-date you are, well, that you do have the latest iPhone or that you do have the latest gadget and gizmo. In your home, the primary concern is not the make of your car, nor the model, nor the year. It's not the quality of your oven. The issue is not whether your house looks better than your neighbor's house. The issue that is central, that puts everything else into perspective is this. Is your life worthy of the gospel? Therefore, God, is he central? What he says is that central. The life he gives you in Christ is that central. Bearing fruit in his spirit is that central. These are the real realities you need to be concerned about. Other people can be preoccupied with retirement plans. Other folks may be preoccupied with the, the next vacation. Other, other boys and girls can obsess over the new Ninjago set or the latest superhero movie. Other people can obsess over the sports. But the spiritual and intellectual and moral progress of you and your family and your church, that is of the utmost importance. So first, the gospel shows us what what really matters. What really matters. What's really worthwhile in life. Second, the gospel here, this, this text shows us the divine intention to save humanity from sin. The beauty of living a life worthy is that that life is as giving as God is giving. That that life is so cross-shaped because the cross has already shaped us. It's Christmas, right? The angel tells Joseph, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Why? She will bear a son. Okay, she'll call his name Jesus. Why? He shall save his people from their sins. The declaration of the gospel. What does it mean to be worthy of the gospel? God provides a remedy for all your failings. So why would you not want all of your life to display how amazing that is? How amazing his grace is. Why would you not want your life to actually somewhat try to make Jesus more important? Or to put it in the fancy hymn terms, how can we not sing love so amazing, love so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. We live in a world that thinks Jesus is a cuss word. We live in a world that uses God in all sorts of ways. And uh, even in the South, we kind of have euphemisms, right? 
We don't say God in a cursing way, but we just say words that sound a lot like it. No matter how many vices are called virtues in the church, outside the church, no matter what your friends or family say, you're, 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 a, you're doing what with your life? You're, you're doing what on Sundays? You should be sleeping in. I mean, think about all the rest you need. You have a busy life. You work so hard. You need to just take that time for yourself. Treat yourself. Don't, don't, don't be too intense about Jesus. Let your manner of life as a citizen of heaven be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Do you know how much you've been bought? Do you know what Jesus Christ has done? He endured hard sweats. He endured torture. He endured mockery. And we have somebody say a mean thing to us on social media, and we're like, ah, ah, persecution. Hardly. Hardly. We are citizens of a kingdom. Therefore, we're not in lockstep with the social or political order of this world. And so if you're really interested in uh, those things, if what gets you going are hot, controversial topics in today's culture, then, then maybe we'll take a look and see what's actually driving me. What's actually driving me? Am I more concerned about, let's say, abortion than I am the gospel of Christ? Third, the gospel displays to us, the gospel of Christ displays to us the love of Christ who dies for sinners who had merited death. Do you see how needy you are? Do you see you deserve nothing but judgment here? And do you realize, do you realize how worthy Christ has made you? In the gospel. Do you realize how worthy he has made you in his doing and in his dying? That he calls you son. He calls you child. That he promises to keep you. And that here's the beautiful thing. He promises to fit you for heaven. One of the reasons why we hear these words and we say, I can never live up to that. Is our focus is not on this stuff. It's not on the fruit of the Spirit. What are you concerned about today? I mean, why, why are you here? Why, why are we here? Why are people going to church today? I guarantee you that the vast majority of people are going to church because they have an emotional issue and they want some help. Or they, they don't have friends. They want some friends. They have a social need. They're mentally anxious and they want a little help. Or they need some financial or physical assistance and they want the church to help them out. And those are not wrong things to be concerned about. That's part of who we are. But how often are those the only things we care about? While we neglect the fitness of our love and joy in Christ. And God comes to us and says, I will make up all your errors. Do you know, friends, that no matter how much this divine imperative comes, you will fail in keeping it. Yes, that is true. You, you will never keep this perfectly. And the beauty of it is that God will make up and repair all your failings. Which means you have no excuse for failing. You have no excuse for saying, well, I can't do it. Who cares if you can't do it? God's going to repair it. God's going to make it up for you. So you can do all the, you can strive as deep as you need to. You can go as long as you need to. You can seek to love and serve. You can 
seek to be more gracious, more courageous, more humble like Christ, knowing that even when you fall, the Lord has you on belay. And if you don't rock climb, then the Lord's your backstop to use a different sporting metaphor. And therefore, should we not be a people who have abounding joy? That's why it is truly sad when too many Presbyterians who should know better are too somber and dull and morose in spirit. I'm not talking about plastic smiles. There are plenty of places you can go that have plastic fake smiles. No, that's, that's, that's not what we're here for. Now, I'm not talking about singing songs that are filled with lament. We have plenty of songs that are fit for sad times. There's a time to mourn. But to be dull is not a Christian virtue. To be unsmilingly self-important is not a mark of the fruit of the Spirit. To be so serious because you think you're so important, that is not the place of, in the heart of a life worn by grace. We're not speaking here about the froth of the top 40 pop songs. The kingdom of God's not eating and drinking. It's not these surface little things. The kingdom of God is what? Righteousness, peace, and joy. The gospel brings joy. Has it brought joy? Is your worthwhile living joyful? And finally, finally, living a life worthy of the gospel means seeing that the gospel secures your relationship with God and your relationship with other people. It's Ephesians 2. The gospel breaks down the barriers. The veil is torn when Christ dies. Do you know how desperately we live in a world that needs this? Because we live in a world today of plastic manufactured identities. We live in a world today of artificial people. We live in a world today where you can grab any one of a number of uh, meanings, identity based upon how much money you have. Oh, I'm a rich person. I'm middle class. I'm poor. And you can fight the other classes. That's, of course, Marx. You can have identity based upon your gender, whichever one you, you like, and you can change that. If you don't like the one you have, you have identity based upon the, the color of your skin. Or perhaps the easiest one, identity based upon power. You have more, I have less, I take from you. I have more, you have less, I'm going to take from you anyway. Why do we do that? In our homes even, we take the Lego sets, we take from our spouses. Sin. Sin in the garden has destroyed our fellowship with God, certainly, and therefore with one another. Why is it that the reality TV shows always ended up in squabbling, not just for the ratings, but because that is a natural human tendency. We are alien, the fallen human tendency, excuse me, we're alienated from one another. We put walls up. We put walls up between each other, and sin puts a roof over our head to make sure that God can't get in. But what does the gospel do? The gospel comes in and it blows the roof off and it breaks the walls down. It blows the roof off between your relationship with God and it breaks the walls down between the way you relate to the people closest to you. And therefore, Paul says, Philippians, make it evident that the walls and the roof of your life have been blown to bits. Make it evident that as Christians, it's not just that you live in a happy commune or some sort of community. I mean, cults can fake happiness. Jim Jones, you know, made sure that people were happy. Well, actually, they weren't. That's another story. 
But the gospel doesn't just make a happy commune of humans together. The gospel in Christ secures God's happiness with you. And that means you can suddenly relate to people who are weirdos like me. That means you can suddenly actually relate to people who are different from you in race and class and gender and power without having to take and grab like the world does. See what the gospel does? So ought we not, therefore, to desire more and more to live for the grace of God who bought us in our lives and our churches and our homes? Life has to be more to you than what you get to do on the weekend. And our conversations, ought they be more than snarky jokes or frivolous entendres? Should not integrity, should not clarity of speech mark the Christian? And I suppose the last thing to say, if you don't know this, Jesus, if you've been just really uncomfortable this whole time because there's all these, all these divine commands, what do you need to do? You need to run to the cross. You need to run to the cross. You need to come to Christ. You need to find a new country. You need to come to gospel land. You've not even come to the, the port yet. You've not even immigrated in. You're still on the outs. You're still living in your home country. Come to the new country. Come to the far country. Come to the better country. You can do that because Christ came into our country. See, Christ came to, to our land. He came into a world that hated him. He came to his own people. He came to his own folks. He came to his hometown and the people that should love him. Because, you know, people love you when you come back home. They hated him and they killed him. But he did it that you and I, who are aliens and strangers, might be brought into his home. May God, therefore, make this church beautiful. May God make us beautiful. May God make you beautiful. Not with your you know, perfume, not with your makeup, not with your suits, but in your heart, in your mind, in your soul, in deed and in truth. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your table, we come on the one hand delighting that you call us and you feed us. Lord, we pray that you would make us worthy by your gospel grace to live lives. We ask that you would set aside these elements, these tokens, this bread, this wine. Though they're small, Lord, they're just signals. They're simply a taste, a teaser of that day. And we'll come home to our real home with you. Strengthen us, therefore, that we may live out of your gospel to be like our Savior. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.